Welcome to 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. On February 13, 2020, No More Deaths hosted a benefit entitled An Evening with Luis Alberto Urea at El Casino Ballroom. Luis Alberto Urea is an acclaimed author of 18 best-selling books. Born in Tijuana, Mexico, to a Mexican father and an American mother, Urea uses his dual-culture life experiences to explore greater themes of love, loss, and triumph. He lived in Tucson, where he began The Hummingbird's Daughter and met his wife, Cindy. He continues to be a frequent visitor to Tucson and has presented at the Tucson Festival of Books since its inception. Today on 30 Minutes, we'll continue with the question and answer portion of the presentation. No More Deaths is an advocacy group based in Tucson and Phoenix that seeks to end the deaths of undocumented immigrants crossing the desert regions near the United States-Mexico border. Here are excerpts from Luis Alberto Urea responding to audience questions. So we should chat, um, but it may, can you turn up the lights so I can see people? Wow, ain't you handsome? Yeah, yeah. Anybody want to chat about anything? I'm open to talk. All right, we'll pass around the mic. What am I working on now? Yeah. Um, a couple of things. I'm always working on a bunch of stuff, but those of you who know me from the book festival know that I have been telling people for a couple of years I'm working on a book about my mother's service in World War II. And um, it's going to be funny to me because I imagine my, my readers getting it and saying, where's the Mexicans? Where's, where's the Mexicans? Are, there's no Mexicans! But, you know, she was a World War II hero in the Red Cross. And um, I realized, I was talking about this in the, in the podcast this morning, that, um, you know, I've spent much of my life talking about my dad's, and, you know, my Tijuana culture. But I nev- it never occurred to me how alone my mother was. She had separated herself from her family. I didn't know a single American relative. I never met them. I met my grandmother once, and uh, that was it. And so 40 years of isolation my mom went through. I think, I think going from being a, you know, a, a sophisticated New York City woman to living on a dirt street in Tijuana with the hard stuff she brought back from the war had a really bad effect on her. Um, and, uh, but you know, she told me all my life about the war. My mother had PTSD badly. Uh, so did my father from what he'd experienced in the Mexican military. And, um, you know, my house at night was an, was an opera of yells and cries and grinding teeth and nightmares. And so, you know, two or three in the morning, it was Leonard Cohen and me and uh, my notebook. And... Um, you know, but she told me, and one of the things, you know, she, she had her, her army uh, footlocker, and she would tell me, don't ever open it. And of course, you know, kids, I was a little guy, and I opened it, and uh, I found her uh, folder of Buchenwald corpse pictures. It's one of my earliest memories as a child. So my mom had to explain to me what that was. I was, wow. 
Um, but you know the, the big sin we commit is thinking, oh, my parents are so square, man. You know, kids are always like, oh, mom. It's just my mom. And I, I realized too late that she actually had been a, a true hero. Um, you know, she had been a hero. And she was in the Battle of the Bow. She was in the Siege of Bastogne. She liberated Buchenwald. She was almost killed in the Red Cross. She was in the foremost group of American women in combat in World War II. Front line. Um, amazing stories. And so, you know, I, 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 I helped, uh, I survived dealing with the um, echoes of that. And when she died, she left behind all of her stuff, you know, and her handwritten memories and her photos and all this stuff. And um, Cindy, you may know her from the old days, and she was one of the reporters at The Citizen. By the way, that's how we met, doing an interview for the Tucson Citizen. That's right, we were a journalism scandal right here in Tucson. Um, but she was, she helps me do research, being a reporter, she knows how to do stuff I don't know how to do. And uh, we were looking up the women that my mother had been involved with, and they were all dead, all of them. Uh, and we were looking up one woman who was her best friend, Miss Jill. Jill Pitts Knappenberger, who had been the truck driver of this two and a half ton GMC truck. And talk about a badass, it was Jill. And we thought she was dead. And so Cindy was looking for her burial information because we knew she had lived in Champaign-Urbana and we live in Naperville, Illinois, about two hours away. Um, and Cindy finds out that Miss Jill's alive. What? And so Cindy, you know, wrote her a very polite letter, and Jill could not believe that my mother had had a son. And she called us. She was 94 at the time, and uh, she was so amazing. And she kept asking me about my mom, about my mom. And she said, "You must come see me." She always calls me Louis. She doesn't know about this Louise business. You know. <laughs> Louis, you must come see me. I said, yes, Miss Jill, we will come see you. And she said, well, don't try to wait till my 95th birthday, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> so we drove down there, and uh, she had arranged a visit to the country club. And at 94 years old, everybody knew her. And as soon as you help her into the restaurant, the waitress says, Miss Jill, I think you need a glass of joy juice. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, she said, I think I'll have to have a double joy juice. Then <laughs> they bring her a Manhattan. <laughs> and she starts to sip it. And as soon as that liquor hit her, her eyebrows started going up. She had this devilish look, and she just, she was a woman back in World War II. And her, her mind is just astonishing. And, she also had all these albums and, and things. When we walked into her apartment, there's a big framed picture of my mother. On and, uh, you know, Miss Jill saved everything. I mean, everything. She still has the map they followed as she drove the truck. She'd keep it on the steering wheel and mark with the pencil. Um, and at one point, 
my favorite, one of my favorite moments. We, we recorded all these hours and hours of hanging out with her. I was crawling around on the floor, drawing the inside of the truck, because the trucks are all gone now, but they had, but she's telling me where things went. It was really great. But um, I was going through one of her albums, and there's a picture of my mother on the beach, looking like Greer Garson, you know, and she's with a dude. <laughs> This guy in, in swimming trunks, right, you know? And I said, Miss Jill, what's this? And she leans over and she looks and she says, oh, that's Jake. And I said, Jake, what are you talking about? And she says to me, Lewis, it was a war. She said, we all had men. So, you know, Miss Jill helped transform the book. And I just wanted to get it right. I've gotten it wrong three times and thrown it away. Um, but we've been all over Europe. We went two years ago, went to Germany and followed their, followed their entire trip um, and went to Buchenwald. Not that it's anything like what it was, but I felt like it, I'd be fake if I didn't stand on that ground and, and listen to the wind and smell. You know what I mean? Um, and it's still... Nothing's ever grown on the whole property around the edges, yes. Um, it was really stunning. So I feel very close, and it took me a lot of work, uh, but I've finally gotten it, and so I'm working on that. That's a long answer. Sorry. <laughs> you are listening to remarks made by Luis Alberto Urrea in a benefit for No More Deaths, recorded at El Casino Ballroom from 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I, lo I love your books so much. They're, Thank you. Um, they're, they're funny and serious and profound and deep. And what I'm curious about is the, the creative process. Do you have a backlog of, of books that you want to write and that you know you're going to write? Or do you just sit down and write and, and something comes out? Um, how does that work for you? <laughs> um, sometimes things intrude. You know, I, so... So Hummingbird's Daughter took me 26 years to write. And if I had, well, thank you. I, I, I think you're applauding for me going so slowly. Um, but I didn't know it was going to take that long, right? I didn't know. If I had known, I wouldn't have done it. So I think it's, it's a mercy. It's grace that we can't see into the future. Um, but things happen in the meantime. Books of poetry, you know, as I was spending my life trying to figure that one out. So things just happen and you respond to them. Um, you know, um, who could have imagined Stephen Miller and cages full of children? Who could have imagined in this country? Um, and so, you know, Time Magazine asked me to write about that and everything stops and I write that. Uh, poetry always is happening, so, you know, it's a side thing. Um, while I was working on the World War II book, my brother, my eldest brother, Juan, my half-brother, um, informed me that he was dying. He had cancer. He was going to die. And I did not know how to deal with it. He had been my patriarch, especially after my dad died. And so that House of Broken Angels you heard about. Um, and by the way, that, I read that whole book in two days. It takes you forever to read it, but I went into a trance because it was my brother. And the producers didn't say anything. 
I just leaned over and started going. I think my eyeballs were, you know, I was in a trance. But anyway, so he was dying. And um, the family, he was turning 74. And the family, largely the inspiration for that story you just heard, the granddaughter decided, they called him Pops. Hey, why don't we give Pops a goodbye birthday party? They knew he was going to die. But let's give him a blowout birthday party. And my brother found out about it. And he was quite gifted with an ego. <laughs> and so he thought, ah, I can have a wake while I'm alive. I can preside over it and force everybody to tell me how amazing I did. <laughs> and we didn't want to miss this, right? And we went out to it. And a lot of things happened. And this is, this is how the process works. I, I had no idea I would write a book. I was paying attention because I was saying goodbye to my brother. And he was in his wheelchair. He was very fragile, very small now. Um, and everybody was there. I like to say every kind of Mexican and kind of Mexicans you didn't know were Mexicans were all there at once. <laughs> Neighbors, abuelitas, tios, tias, kids, cholos, college students, 150 little kids, nobody knew who they were, you know, they were just <laughs> little dogs, they had chihuinis, like bing, bing, bing. all this chaos going on. And my brother's sitting in the middle of all of this, and people were coming to him, and they were taking a knee and thanking him and telling him what he had meant to them, and I sat there next to him watching this, and it reminded me of the wedding scene in The Godfather. <laughs> And I leaned over and I said, Carnal, you're just like Don Corleone. And he said, I am Don Corleone. <laughs> and then he had to go to bed because he was so tired. All day they would put him in bed to rest and bring him back out. And when he was the first time he went to bed, he asked me to come into his room. We had never hugged, never kissed. He's a very, you know, formal. But he said, he was in bed. I said, what? He said, come on. I said, you want me to get in bed with you? So I lay down next to him, and it was one of these scenes where like, hey. <laughs> and we were listening to the party out there, and he said this thing to me, which is where this book came from. He said, I was lying here thinking, Karnan. He said, you know, if you turn 74, you've only seen Christmas morning 73 times your whole life. It's not enough. And I thought, holy God, it's going to be this kind of thing. You know, I'm going to cry all day. And then he says to me, I got a question. And I said, what? And he said, do Americanos kiss each other? <laughs> I said, like in a movie? No, hombre, no, you know. Gringo families. Se besan? I said, but yeah, like you kiss your mom, right? No, moms don't count. I said, why not? Because if you don't kiss your mom, you go to hell. <laughs> oh, do men kiss each other? Yeah. I don't know. I said, I think, sure, I've seen dads kiss their boys. And yeah, why not? I, and he was like this. <laughs> and I said, you want me to kiss you? And he said, no, are you crazy? No. Yeah. <laughs> kiss them right there. My first kiss. 
Okay. Um, and you know, it went on, and when we were leaving, we were walking out, I'm always on tour, and I was leaving from there to go to Flagstaff and in Dallas. And I walked in his bedroom, it was late at night, the party had fallen apart, he was in bed. I walked in, he stopped me at the door, and he said, don't say goodbye to me. I said, oh, okay, what should I say? And he said, tell me, I'll see you next time. So I stepped up to him in the bed and I said, I'll see you next time. And he put out his hand. I thought he wanted to shake hands and he grabbed my hand fiercely and he pulled me close. And he said, later, when you see hummingbirds, that's me. And uh, I, I, I went on to Flagstaff, did my event. By the time I got to Dallas, he had died. And so went back to Barry. And I didn't know it was a story, but Cindy knew. And she kept telling me, you've got to write this. And I'd say, write what? Oh, you've got to write it. So I wrote a 90-page novella, and I sent it to Little Brown. And they're like, what's this? And I said, this is my new book. And they said, no, it's not. So other people saw the potential. I couldn't because it was family. They were right there. But as soon as I, I got that little distance, I thought, oh, I see. I see. I could tell. I could try to tell the story of all of us, you know, in, in any family. I started thinking of it as the Mexican Finnegan's Wake, because I wanted it to be for everybody who's had a family, everybody who's got outrageous characters in their family, or has had awkward funerals, right? And it had to be funny as well as tear-jerking, because this is a composer. You want to use the humor to humanize everybody and to lull your readers so that when you drop them into the pain, they really feel it. But then if you, you don't want to be sadistic, you can't leave them in despair. <laughs> you know, you bring them back up a little bit. And I know about a time, but just to give you an idea of how story happens, and then I'll stop, I swear. But, that's all right? Well, then let me kick my shoes off. <laughs> no. Um, there was, weirdly enough, a funeral before my brother's a week before. It was the grandma, his mom, not my mom, his mom. And my brother, Octavio, has a son. <laughs> uh, his name is Carlos. And Carlos has a rock band. So we're at the funeral, if you can imagine this. All these mourners. This woman was 100 years old when she passed. And the organ's playing, you know. And my brother says, Carnal, Carnal, you seen Carlos? I said, oh, where's he at? Oh, he's over here, he's mijo, come over. Carlos comes over, hi, tío. And I said, hi, hi, it's good to see you. And Octavio says, mijo, he's in a rock band. I said, really? He said, yeah. And I said, what's the name of the rock band? It's called Take It To Your Grave. <laughs> and I said, what kind of band is that? He goes. Norwegian death metal. <laughs> and I said, wait a minute, man. I said, you got a Mexican Norwegian death metal band? <laughs> yeah, deal. And I said, what do you do? I sing, man. And I said, I, I have to ask you a question. If you know Norwegian death metal, you'll understand this question. I said, do you sing? in the Cookie Monster demon voice like those guys do? 
And this guy, in the middle of the funeral, forgets where he is and he goes, Extreme! <laughs> and my brother's like, Hijo, no, shh, it's okay. Because okay. he thought, you know, the guy had suddenly possessed by Satan. You know? How can you not write? <laughs> You are listening to remarks made by Luis Alberto Urrea in a benefit for No More Deaths, recorded at El Casino Ballroom from 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Oh, one more question. Oh, boy. Writing many times brings me to tears. So does some of your poetry. Thank you. And I'd like to know, how do you take care of yourself? I cry. <laughs> when, when that sadness comes, is it, is it simply crying? Joy juice? What is it? <laughs> Joy juice. Um, it can be really hard. Um, and sometimes, you know, nobody said it was going to be easy, though. Right. And it's, it's the lesson I try to teach my writing students. You know, that I, 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 I try to te tell them that you're not here for a career. You're not here for fame. And it's weird, because I'm at the university. I say, I don't even care if you get your PhD or not. We're here to live the writer's life. You're here to walk the road to get your black belt. And I tell them, once you get your black belt, you're going to realize how little you actually know. But it's a process of being. And that came, I think, from Hummingbird's daughter, especially. You know, being with medicine people all the time and 20-some years with, you know, Yaki and Apache cousins I didn't know I had. And people from every tradition talking about sacredness. And so that's all great. Um, and Cindy can tell you, I have times when I just can't anymore. And sometimes it's about things that are out of my control. You know, the unwelcome attention from this book. You know, and people raising hell all around me about that book. <laughs> and, um, you know, I mean, talking to people that would have been my great heroes once upon a time and now they're embroiled in that controversy. And it got to me, it got to me. And um, I've, I'm being surrounded by death lately. My, my best friend in the world died in April of brain cancer. I was on the road. The day he died, I had to give a big talk at the AWP. And, uh, you know, there was a kind of a triumvirate of friends. One of them, we were two boys and one was a girl. And uh, she's now dying of pancreatic cancer. And so uh, there come times when you just can't anymore. You can't. And we go be quiet. You know, we go be quiet. So right after the book festival, we're sneaking away on a ship to Puerto Vallarta. We're just going to read and just take the sun. Going to go look at some whales. You know, things like that. I, I really enjoy our family. Enjoy our kids. Enjoy our dog. We have a dog about the size of a six-inch subway sub. <laughs> Whatever it takes. You have to learn some self-care. You know, we go, we have a, a gym with some sadistic but wonderful coaches. And, you know, you go in the morning because that's all you have to think about. 
all you have to do is keep praying, God, get me out of here. And that takes your mind off. But those things, just some self-care. Um, but also, as a craftsperson, you, you know when you might be hitting it or getting close to what you'd like to accomplish, right? So there's a certain pride in that. And uh, because I was a thwarted music guy, like I said, I wished I'd been Robert Plant or something. Um, it feels like I'm composing, like actually composing music. And so when I feel it, when I know that something's working, it's musically working for me. So all those things go into it. And then, you know, people give you love. More love than I deserve. Everywhere I go, people are kind. And people warn me. You know, I, I did, a, I did a, a talk in far northern New York, up by the Canadian border. Um, and they kept warning me, you know, uh, this is MAGA country. I'd say, yeah, cool. No, but MAGA country. I said, yes. And they said, well, you know, um, we'll have, uh, we'll have uh, bias amelioration teams in the audience. And I said, What's that? And they said, well, you know, people will stand up and yell at you. I said, no, they won't. do this all year. No, no, just in case. I said, I promise you they will not. And they don't. I think they're a little baffled, but I answer their questions. You know, I get up there, because they've never seen me, and I say, so you're asking yourself, how come this Mexican dude looks Irish? And they start to laugh, and we start talking. And I tell them, we miss each other. Americans are going to fall apart if we don't learn to talk to each other again. But I don't care who you voted for. I just want to talk. And they're cool. And they usually want to hear about the Border Patrol. And so what happens is it attracts a lot of law enforcement people. And they're suddenly my buddies. You know, it happens over and over. And I do get threats. I do get weird stuff. People have offered to kill my children and things. But it's usually anonymous idiots. And they go away after a while. So, you know, that is very moving. And the last little element I will say is everything for me is about witness, bearing witness. Pastor John can tell you, you know, I wanted to be a preacher myself. And uh, it's all about grace. And so in bearing witness, I am always gifted with the people that I'm trying to witness. You know, the NEA uses Into the Beautiful North as big lead. So six or seven times a year, I go places where entire school districts or entire cities are reading my book. And they bring all the brown children who are terrified, sad, especially now. And it's just amazing. And their parents come. People come now. It's been a feature for about the last two years. People will come to my readings and stand there and start to cry at the signing table. And I know, and I stand up and I say, you made the journey, and they just nod. And I say, does anybody here understand what you went through? And I said, do you want a hug? And they always do. So we just hold each other for a minute. And they don't even have a book, right? They didn't want, they just wanted contact. And they go away, they leave. That, to me, is amazing. It's so beautiful. So when you get tired, you know, you can always remember, I'm not 
out there. I'm not praying that Scott put water up to keep me alive. I'm blessed, you know. So I can whine about it, and then Cindy tells me to buck up and let's go to work, and I do. And that's that's how that all works for me. It's just a, it's just a, a, a matrix of stuff. And honestly, we've gotten to go all over the country, all over the world, doing this, talking to people. It's amazing. So I'm blessed. Don't worry about me. We'll have to leave it there. You've been listening to remarks made by Luis Alberto Urea and a benefit for No More Deaths, recorded at El Casino Ballroom by 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. This has been part two of a two-part series. More information about the author can be found at luisurea.com. More information about No More Deaths is available at nomoredeaths.org. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes. I'm Amanda Schager. You can find this and all recent episodes on the 30 Minutes program page at kxci.org, where you can find our social media links and subscribe to the podcast. <laughs>